Well, today, as we've prayed, God is going to speak from the Scriptures. When we open the Bible, he speaks, God speaks, and today we're in this series in Matthew's Gospel. He's going to speak about having real joy this Christmas, real happiness, real everlasting, never-ending, can't-take-it-away joy. And we need that. We need that, friends. Why do we need that? Because we spend our days looking for such happiness only to be disappointed because it gets taken away. Because we often look for it in the wrong places. Let me tell you the time when I thought I would get this joy. I thought I would have happiness forever. It was Christmas and the year 1990. So let me take you back to ancient times. In 1990, I was 12, and I thought I was going to get what I'd always wanted. I'd always wanted this thing, and I thought this would make me happy forever. It would give me joy. You may not have heard of it, but it's called an Atari 2600. Some of you have heard of it, which is surprising. But an Atari 2600 is a game console. It still exists, you can get them now off eBay for about 50 bucks. But an Atari 2600 for 1990 was the thing that many wanted. It was the game console that would make you happy. If you had this thing and you had all the range of games it provided, this was, we're talking friends, games like Pac-Man. It shaped a whole generation. I wanted one. I had an inkling I was getting one. And then on Christmas Day, I received one, an Atari 2600. I still remember playing skateboarding and the soundtrack that came with it. It just went on ad nauseum. I thought that would be for my joy forever. But then something happened, friends. Something very big happened. In 1996, they released the Nintendo 64. And my joy disappeared. More than disappeared, what I thought was joy, what I thought would last forever, turned to jealousy. You see, my parents said, you've already got a game console. You've got the Atari, what is it, 3790, whatever, you know, Dad would say. It's a 2600, Dad. It's easy to say, 2600, like a tractor, just... Four numbers. My parents said, well, you don't need a Nintendo 64. It's less numbers. Why is that better? But I thought, if I just had a Nintendo 64, which all my friends had, then I would have real joy. But instead, I lived in this kind of this jealousy that I didn't have that thing that would make me happy. I started to live for the next thing I thought would satisfy I became a joyless worshipper of things that are not worthy of worship. Now you might think that's a strange thing to say, worship. You didn't talk about worship, you just wanted a, a Christmas present, Russ. What is the word worship? We heard in our kids' talk this morning in the New City Catechism, those first commandments which centre around God are all about worship and wrong worship, false idols, the worship of things that are not God, 
is not only bad friends, it's not only wrong, but let me, let me give an insight into where we're going this morning in this passage. It's bad for you. It's not only bad, it's not only wrong, it's not just wrong against God, it'll actually make life in your heart bad for you. You'll turn into a bitter, jealous, dissatisfied, despondent person if you live for the wrong things. The word worship comes from a combo word. So if you were to go to the McDonald's of where words come from, and you ask for a combo meal, that's where worship is. It's a combo meal. It's where we get the word worth-ship. You, you live for something that's worthy. So we, we all worship something. We all live for something. We think that, that thing, or that person, or that relationship, or whatever it is, we all live for something. We think that'll make me happy. That's where worship comes from. And that's why we worship. We worship because we think that will make me happy. That will improve my life. I'll live for that thing. So here's the question this morning. Where is your worship found? Like, where is it you live for something? Where is your joy? A good test might be, if the thing you live for can be taken away, would your life be devastated over? Would you have nothing left to live for? What do you live for? This is the key question of our lives. It's the key question this Christmas. It's the key question in Matthew 2. We're going to see three things in Matthew 2. You'll see on the sermon outline, it's pretty simple and yet profound. Because if we don't hear these things and if we don't see how this would change us, we miss out on the opportunity of eternity. Like we miss out on the opportunity of not just, you know, relationship with God, but what's good for your hearts, what's good for you, what's good for me. Three things. Friends, look at the wise guys, look at the wrong guys, and then see how wise guys worship and how that leads to exceeding joy. Firstly, let's look at the wise guys. When Helena read for us, and we're so thankful for our Bible readers, we want to extend to the church family Remember here, we're going to increase our Bible readers. So if you would like to join the Bible reading list, that's a little plug. Let Ryan Smith know or let me know and we can put you on that list. But we, when Helena read so well, we, we, we met these wise guys. Now, when we come to Matthew 2, this is the passage we meet these men. And many a nativity scene and a song is sung about these men and it usually has three of them because there were three sets of gifts. Many a song has three, we, we call them wise men, and it becomes a, a kind of a cute story of gift giving, a kind of a birthday and Christmas present combo all at once. Jesus gets kind of all the presents all in one day. Yet the events, the events surrounding these men are more than Christmas filler. The events are fundamental, perceiving the power of the gospel at Christmas. These events are extraordinary, and these men experience a joy that many of us, I think, wish we had. But here's why we don't pursue it. I think we've come to think it's just a fantasy. I think we just, we just think that I'll never have that kind of joy. It's just a fantasy. And you know what we do, ironically enough? Instead, we chase the fantasy of joy in this life only. And that's a phantom. Many people pursue joy. I want joy, I want to be happy. So what do I do? I pursue joy in and of itself. I pursue happiness in and of itself. The problem with pursuing joy 
as the object of your affection, happiness as the object of your affection is, it disappears once you think that you've even got it. So it actually, it's a phantom. You can never have it because you're just pursuing the thing that you can't get. We pursue phantom joys that disappear, leaving us jilted by false promises, dissatisfied with despondent disappointment. This is a moment in your week that I think is worth it to take a look at this again, take a look at these men, even if it's a rewatch for you. Look at these men. Let's cut through the cute. Let's cut through the, the three wise men story and see actually who these men are. See, I want you to notice from verses 1 and 2, Matthew 2 verses 1 and 2, these men don't arrive at a stable. They don't arrive at a manger. In fact, it's probably many days, months, even years when these guys arrive. Have a look. Verse 1, Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men come from far, far away. They're foreigners. And I use that word on purpose because for us, that can conjure up all sorts of images that are foreign to me, aliens, weird, different. These are very different people. They're foreigners, but they're men on a mission. Notice what they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And what do they come to do with this king? Worship him. Now Herod meets them, and Herod might be wondering, who are these guys? And many of us still wonder. We, we only know a little bit about them. What do we know? We don't know that they're from the east. That is, they're from over Babylon way. We saw in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. That's their neck of the woods. That's the district they're from. They're from over that way. And in the Bible that you have, the Greek word often translated is, it's, we, we call them wise men. That's not a bad translation, but it's not the word that's used. And the word that's used in Greek is magi. We say magi. Now, I want you to have a guess the word that we get from magi. What's a word that sounds like magi in our kind of lingo? Mag- magician. You see, these wise men are actually ancient Near East magicians. Magi is where we get the word magician from. So though in Koine Greek we pronounce it magi, because that's how you pronounce it, but it's, we say magi, it's where we get that word magician from. These are, the ESV translates it as wise men, but there's a footnote there in your Bibles. It's magi, magicians. Now this throws us a little bit, doesn't it? Because we think, oh no, 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 hang on a minute. If it's in the Bible, they're going to be kind of not, that's, that's not right. They can't be magicians. And we assume that they're astronomers and we have pictures with telescopes and such. Well, maybe they had telescopes, but they're not so much scientists as they are astrologers and magicians. They're priests. They're foreigners. They're of another religion, friends. Magi is a term that is used in the ancient Near East, in Persia and Babylon, for magicians. Let that settle for a moment. We know from the book of Daniel, God's Old Testament people had met Magi before. 
We know that the, he, uh, we, we see there that encounter magicians of Babylon, these wise guys of the pagan empire of that time. We know also we see them in the New Testament. In Acts 8, Simon Magus. Simon Magus. Simon the Magician. That's his title. You know, it's like you could, you could imagine him on the stage going, whoa, whoa, not out of this hat, out of this hat. Simon Magus. That's his, that's his thing. In Acts 8, Simon Magus acts as a magician because he wants the Holy Spirit to get more money. He wants the Holy Spirit to have more tricks. In Acts 13, we meet Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus was a Jewish false prophet and magician. Let this settle, friends. The Magi were not part of a cute story of just really, they were just really wise, really smart kind of scientists. These are totally foreigners to the things of Israel. They're pagan magicians from the east. And what are they following as they get to see this king? Let this settle. They're following a star sign. A star sign. Now, some people are into star signs today. So when I was growing up, back when I got an Atari 2600 in 1990, if you wanted your star sign, you bought the magazine called TV Week. It's a great publication. It's had all the TV channels, but also had things like the latest goss, you know, who the celebs would sort of celebbing with. And, and on the back of TV Week was the star signs. Now, when I was growing up, I read that with a, a bit of amusement, I guess. But there are some people take star signs very seriously in our world, which is a great irony, really. But we, we see people take star signs with a, with a great seriousness. And the reason I say it's ironic is because the star signs often are so vague. But this star sign is not like those star signs. Not what you'd perhaps pay for online or follow on social media. Look at this star sign. This star sign, as Matthew shows us, has all the backup of Scripture. It's got revelation. It's got special revelation. These wise guys come from a foreign place. They're foreigners to God's people, Israel. They're outsiders. So you have to ask the question, how on earth, literally, how on earth do they know about this star? How on earth could they possibly go, there's a star, a comet, whatever it is, and we'll look at the star in a moment, that's moving that direction. Oh, it must be the king of the Jews. How do they know that? Magic. No, it's not magic. It's got the back of scripture. But how do they know scripture? Where would they know scripture from? Remember where God's people, Israel, once were. Once they were exiled. And where were they exiled to? Ah, what was the name of that place again? It starts with B. Ah, it wasn't Bethlehem. No, no, no. It's Babylon. See, if you know your Bibles, you know that God's people had been totally removed from their country because they kept sinning. They didn't listen to the prophets. They ignored their preachers of their day. They kept sinning and they get exiled to Babylon, where the Magi are from. Now, if you're a Magi and you're an eclectic and you're kind of looking for the worldly wisdom, it's highly possible that they have also seen not only Old Testament people of God, but the Old Testament scriptures. They know those scriptures. They've read them. And perhaps they've even read 
a quote from one of their own. Numbers 24.17, Balaam's prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. You see this Balaam. We all know the story of Balaam and his donkey. If you don't, let's talk about it later. But Balaam, here is Balaam, this, this prophet who accidentally in a way sort of speaks about something that's going to happen for sure in the future and it's all about a star, some sort of star sign. But the star is not the main point of the passage. What is the star about? It literally is a star sign. It's a pointer to something else. It's a promise that a king would come. And these magi have taken the Old Testament scriptures and they've seen the star sign pointing and they know this is about a king and we must go and worship him. Imagine such a thing happening today. Imagine people that are totally foreign to us, perhaps even of another religion. They've picked up a Bible and they've said, look, we've worked it out. You guys have got the message of the king, the real king, and we've come to worship him. Tell us what to do next. What would happen here? We'd be, wow, there'd be excitement among us. There'd be a thrill of worship among us. What happens in Herod's court that day? What happens in Jerusalem? What do you expect the response to be of God's people? God's king? God's priests? God's scribes? God's rulers, leaders? What do you expect their response to be? Let's have a look. Verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Why is Herod troubled? Well, for a start with, I think it helps to look a bit historically at who Herod is, which gives us an idea of why he's troubled. Herod the first is called Herod the Great. That's his nickname. Pretty cool nickname. Sounds like he gave it to himself. Right, if you're going to give yourself a nickname, you know, well, you know, there are other kings. What can, I, I could be called the Great. Technically, Herod the Great was an Edomite. So he actually has no rightful claim to the throne, no royal right to be king. But Herod the Great was appointed king of the Jews by the Roman overlords. And when you read about Herod the Great, suffice to say he was not that great. So you can go and read about him later, but Herod the Great was truly a troubled person. He was so troubled, he was so paranoid, he couldn't bear the thought of someone else being king. Not even his own family. He also had anger issues. Bursts of anger. Now you combine anger issues with paranoia and what do you get? You get a very bad combination. So here is a person with power who is paranoid and has anger issues. We know from history, 
It was such a volatile combination, he was so paranoid for his own power that he killed his own wife and his own sons so that they wouldn't be king. Just in case someone thought that would be a good idea, let's make them king. No, let's... He killed them. He was a troubled man. And now he's troubled by this news. Now, shouldn't he of all the people know the scriptures speak of the future Messiah? If you're the king of Israel and you look in your Bibles and you look at the history of kings, good kings, what do they do? Where's my Bible? Where's my Bible? Where's the Bible? We need the Bible. We need the Bible to shape community life here. That's what a good leader does. Where's the Bible? Bad kings go, what's that Bible thing? We don't need that around here. We've got other things now. Herod is not the kind of Bible-searching king. Oh, he's got other people to do that. I've got my people. Where's my people? Where's my people? The people that are the Bible experts. I'll just call them in when I need it. Otherwise, I won't listen to them, by and large. But where are the Bible experts? Because there's something here. These these guys mentioning the Bible. Where's the Bible? So he calls in the Bible experts. And the Bible experts come in. Verse 4, the chief priests, the scribes, the people, inquire to them, when is this Christ supposed to be born? And they give the answer. They know it's written in the Scriptures. Joe Bryan read this earlier from Micah 5 verse 2. In Bethlehem in Judea, it says, by the prophet. The religious rulers know this. They expect the Christ to be born in Bethlehem. He'd arrive in Bethlehem. He'd be king of the Jews. But Herod's thinking, I know a minute. I'm the king of the Jews. There can't be another king. And we'll see what Herod does with this news on Christmas Day. Herod is troubled. Herod is nicknamed Herod the Great. He's nicknamed King of the Jews by the Romans. But the phrase King of the Jews is used sparingly in the Bible. In fact, it's only used in two areas. Here and, do you know where else? On the cross. At Jesus' crucifixion. Because a real king lays his life down for his people doesn't kill his people. Herod was a puppet king in every sense. In a sense, he's an empty glove. But the king that is born, he's really going to change the world. He's really going to make a difference. There will be glad tidings with this birth. The Christ has come. The Old Testament word is Messiah. The New Testament word is Christ. It both means the same thing, the anointed king. Do you remember in our Genesis series, Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They are exiled out of the garden. They then have a baby boy. What does Eve say? She says, at last, I've gotten a man. In other words, she expects he's here. The promise of the the serpent crusher. Ah! Finally, we waited that long. We waited nine months. He's here. But of course, what happens with that first one? His name is Cain. He's a murderer. And every generation since, we've been waiting for the son of Eve, the son of Adam. We've been waiting for the serpent crusher, born into the world in the ordinary way, to be the extraordinary king. He is here. If only we could see it. And even look at those 
wise guys of Herod's court. Look at the scribes. Look at the, the experts in the Bible, those Bible experts. Look at them. What do you expect if you've got Bible experts going, ah, the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. You've got these people in front of you saying, we're going to Bethlehem to worship him. What do you think they would do next? Can we come? We want to worship him too. But what do they do? Have a check. Have a look. Well, it's nothing. They do nothing. Their silence is deafening. Maybe they've got other things to do. You know, let's not be so hard on them. They've got, things, they've got, they've got life. They've got jobs. They've got things to do tonight, things to plan for tomorrow, busy schedules and calendars and messaging. And We've got no time. We'll go later when Herod goes. The thought of worshipping the Christ, that'll come. But not right now. But then we see these wise guys. And see particularly how they worship. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw that star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Can you imagine that scene? As that star moves, so are they. Now, people get caught up in the star. Is it a comet? Is it some sort of, you know... uh, point of, of finding in science if we just knew there was a comet there at that time and the timing of all that, that it would work out well actually people have looked and we haven't found such a thing but I think that's the point the point is this is not a natural explanation, it's a supernatural event creation is moving the birth of the Christ causes the host the armies of angels to sing it causes creation to move a start it causes the whole world to pivot around him it causes magi to worship him what does it cause for you and i does it move us at all barely a little bit interesting at best and as they come you can imagine the scene there's a knock on the door Speaking in the dialect of the day, of the place. They they perhaps come in with an accent. They're foreigners. And you've got the family, you've got Mary and Joseph, and there's Jesus there. These guys are from far away. What do they do? They come in and quietly, we all just watch this scene as they come in. And what do they do? They fell down and worshipped him. What's the falling down about? It's not if nothing else matters. Not even embarrassment matters in this moment. I would not be embarrassed to say, this is who I live for. This is who I worship. And I don't care if I'm praying with my eyes closed and you see me down the street and that's something, somehow you feel a bit embarrassed to be like that kind of Christian. I live for Jesus. 
the star moves, comes to rest, they come to worship and see what happens for them in their lives. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Wouldn't it be enough to say they just rejoiced? Like, why does it say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? Wouldn't it be enough to say they were just really, you know, happy? But notice this, the, the extra words upon extra words to try and express something so great. How do you express, how do you explain how you feel when you find something so great? How do you express that? They give gifts, of course, gold, frankincense and myrrh. And as it's pointed out, myrrh is an odd gift to give to a king because myrrh is often used at funerals, which perhaps is appointed to what will happen for this king in the future, what he's come to do. They give gifts, of course, but, but notice they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They worship him. Here is the Christ of the Jews whom the king at the time did not welcome, the religious leaders did not rejoice, but foreigners, outsiders, come in and worship him. Friends, who do you worship? What do you worship? I think we couldn't look at this passage and then look away and forget about asking that question. Because this is good for our hearts. Honestly, I want you to think about it. What do you tend to live for? What is it you tend... What what lights you up? What gives you joy? And does it last forever? There's an American professor, professor of English. He wasn't a believer in Jesus. His name is David Foster Wallace. He was giving a commencement speech at Ohio University. And he gives his speech. It's a, it's a fascinating speech to read in full, but I've just got an excerpt for you. But David Foster Wallace, I want you to remember this. Important. He's like the Magi. He's not a believer in Jesus. But this is what he says about worship. He says to university students about the start in their lives, whole lives before them, an array of things they could live for. And he says this. There is no such thing as a non-worshipper. Sure, you can call yourself a non-believer, he says. You can call yourself an atheist, but you can't call yourself an a-worshipper. There is no such thing as a non-worshipper. Why? Everybody worships something. But be careful, he says, for if you live for the wrong thing, if you worship the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. Now, pause. These are his words. Not a Christian. Just want to keep pointing this out. Not a preacher, not a believer in Jesus. I'll keep going. His quote. If you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling constantly weak and afraid, like Herod, by the way. 
And you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intelligence. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling like a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace, not a believer in Jesus, gets it. Friends, there'll always be something or someone. Humans are designed to be worshippers. The problem in the garden at the fall is we worship the wrong thing. That's why we have Ten Commandments and the first few that speak about the right worship of God. Because wrong worship is bad for us. We're creatures of worship and we worship things that are not good for us and it turns our life sour and sideways. Can I ask you, are you happy with what you live for? Does it make you happy? I think someone said once, Australia, in the book Affluenza, Australia is the most privileged society in the world, in the history of the world, and we are the most depressed and most despondent, the most dissatisfied people who's walked the planet. By statistics, we're not happy. Our society is not happy. We pretend to be happy. Because we chase joy in the wrong places. We chase a phantom we can never hold on to. Maybe for a few days, years, but never forever. The sin of our ancient grandparents is our sin. We stop worshipping the creator and worship created things. We actually need something worthy to live for, worthy to worship. We've been waiting for the advent, for the arrival of this since the beginning. Look at Herod's problem. Why is Herod the way he is? Herod is the way he is. His joy is sucked out because he had all the opportunity to worship God, but he worships himself. So what's going on in your heart? What or who does your heart worship? What do you live for? Where is your joy? Here is a forever fact. Everything that you could possibly live for or give your life to, no matter what that is, pick a thing that you think that will make me forever happy. Atari 2600, whatever it is. None of those things died for your sin and rose for your hope. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the one who did So we could have joy, exceeding joy this Christmas. Here's a warning. If you worship anything else, you live for something else, and you play the whole God replacement thing in your life, and you live for an idol or a a false god, whatever that is, you'll actually end up becoming more and more like Herod. You chase and worship things you can't keep. Herod chased the worship of himself. Here's the problem. You know how Herod died? Herod died because he was racked with disease. Herod died embittered. He died a horrible death. But before he died physically, his heart had died because he hadn't lived for God. 
But knowing and worshipping Christ is liberating, it's freeing. That's what's wonderful about being a Christian, isn't it? Is that we live for someone who actually gives us joy forever. Christ has come so we can worship with meaning and worship the one who is worthy. Worship the one who has come for our exceeding joy. Friends, I'm going to pray now. I'm going to ask the Lord that he would do that work in you. Because I can't. Like I can plead with you for about half an hour about these things. But in the end, it's got to be that the Lord does his work in you. He takes his word and you see what those magi saw. And it would change what your life revolves around. It would change what you live for. It would change for your joy. Let's pray that it will. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us to really see who Jesus Christ is, like the Magi saw. We don't want to be like Herod or even just religious, know our Bibles well enough to give the right answer, but we want to be like those who are even foreigners who are hungry to find truth, hungry to find the one who satisfies our hunger for worthy worship, to give joy that can't be taken away. So, Father, we pray that you would do this work in us this morning. Take your word and so work in us that today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, and the days ahead, you would rearrange the furniture of faith in our heart that we would believe Jesus truly is worthy of our worship and that by having our centre of gravity in him, our life revolved around him, that we would live lives that rejoice exceedingly with great joy. This is what we're asking. We're asking for this miracle again in Jesus' name. Amen.